pretty good? Can y'all hear me? Okay, good. <clears throat> See if I can get this clip to me. We were, Sue and I were in the back uh, in the sound booth. We were trying to find lights to maybe turn off up here because I don't know how legible my PowerPoint is going to be, the wording. Um, so maybe if I remember, I will, I will tell you um, what, what the words say. But hope, hopefully you can, you can see it okay. But if you'll go ahead and open up your Bibles to John 6, and I'm going to open us in prayer. Father, you are um, so kind to us. You're the giver of life that's physical. You're the giver of life that's spiritual. Um, you've given us your, your words here that we can come and uh, discuss, and we can read, and we can talk about them, Father, and they are words of life to us. We thank you so much for that. I just pray that you will give me your words to say um, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this chapter is a lot about bread, isn't it? Um, bread is a staple food, certainly. It is one of the oldest foods known to mankind. And um, I love reading, but I spent most of my growing up life not reading very much at all, not really thinking that I was a reader or that I liked to read. But when I started homeschooling my children, we read a lot. And um, I noticed that in so many of the books we read, we read lots of historical fiction, that bread, again and again and again, was sometimes the only food people had. It was just a huge part of their diets. And we, where we live, of course, and we have supermarkets full of all these things, um, it is not so primary in our diets. In fact, the whole gluten-free thing, you know, um, a lot of us are avoiding bread, not me. I, I mean, give me all the bread. I will fill up on bread at every meal. I, I love it. I hope I'm never... Uh, diagnosed with a gluten allergy or something. <laughs> it would be really bad. The, our passage begins today with the feeding of the 5,000. Now this sign, it's the fourth one that we've seen in John. And it's very significant because it's the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Each of the Gospel writers might have looked at it a little differently or presented a different uh, take on it, but it's in all four of them, and it's the only miracle that is. And John uses it to, to develop this beautiful theme that's going to dominate most of the rest of the chapter. That is namely that Jesus is the bread of life. So I'm going to go a little verse by verse today. A lot of times I read big sections and then talk, but I'm just going to go a little bit more verse by verse today. And we're going to start with uh, verses, I think I went too far, feeding the hungry in verses 1 through 15. So let's start on 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. This after this means after the events of chapter 5, and it's not an immediate time that this happened. Uh, commentators that I read and scholars think that maybe six months to a year has passed. Um, John skips a lot of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, but we know from Matthew 4, 13, that Jesus lived in Capernaum. And if I can get this to turn, I think you can probably see Capernaum up there pretty well. See how it's on the Sea of Galilee and kind of on at the top. And then uh, we know from Luke 9, 10 that Jesus and his disciples had gone to Bethsaida. And that's where this miracle occurred. So Bethsaida 
it looks like it's not quite on the sea anymore. They do believe that the sea used to, to go further into Bethsaida um, than it currently does. But that's the one of the be best maps I found as far as having it all really clearly pictured. Now that's where this this miracle occurred. While I'm looking at these pictures, and I'll just go ahead and point this out. Whoops, I just passed it. This is a, a view from um, Bethsaida to the Sea of Galilee. You can see it's really green and grassy, and it's really a, a really beautiful area. Um, so let's read on in 2 through 4. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now this is the second Passover that's mis mentioned in John. And the third one will be uh, when Jesus is actually crucified. So we're about a year away from that, that event happening at this point in this passage. Um, Okay, reading on, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large, a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. I, I love that Jesus is thinking ahead here. Um, he sees this crowd of people, and he's already thinking about they're going to need to eat. Um, we don't know why he asked Philip in particular as opposed to one of the other disciples, uh, but we are told this little tidbit here that he is testing Philip because um, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. I think he always knew exactly what he was going to do. So I think we can probably assume that Philip pass, uh, not passes but fails the test. Um, he mentions this amount of 200 denarii. Now, one denarius was worth a day's wage. So 200 would be, about, you know, 200 days of wage. If they worked six days a week, that would be about eight months of a salary. Why did he use this figure? Um, we don't know. Maybe it was how much money they, they had amongst themselves. Um, we know that Judas, from other scriptures, Judas was their treasurer, and he had money. They had money. I don't know if this is how much they had, but either way, it wasn't enough. He said that it wouldn't be enough to even give them a little bit, each one of them a little bit. There's so many people. All right. It also appears, and the reason why I think he, fail, he failed the test is that he doesn't seem to ask Jesus for a solution or seem to indicate that Jesus might have a solution. All right, let's read on in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Andrew seems to do a little better. He's on the right track. He's actually got some food here. Um, but he basically says, This is not a drop in the bucket. I mean, this is not going to work. Um, these loaves um, probably looked not like this picture on the PowerPoint, but they were probably round and flat. And barley was a very coarse grain, and it was the it was uh, the type of grain and bread that the poorest would would eat. It wasn't refined like wheat, um, and the fish were, you know, not delectable salmon fillets or anything like that. They were just small little fish, probably dried or pickled. It was a very meager meal. Um, 
But I think all in all, Andrew's response is similar in that he does not seem to ask Jesus for any better solution or seem to make the connection that Jesus can supply what's needed. So let's read on in 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus does what seems like the simplest of things. Um, he sits them down. He has them sit. And he thanks his father for this, this meal, this bread and, the, and these fish. And then he just begins dividing and dividing and dividing. And the dividing yields multiplication. Now, if you're a really bad mathematician, you might be able to divide and get a bigger number. <laughs> but it doesn't usually work that way, but it worked that way here. Um, as far as these people thinking that Jesus was the prophet and knowing that about him or thinking that they, he, he was the prophet, he was. He was also the king that they had been waiting for, but not doing the type of things that they thought that king should do. First, he was going to become their priest. Um, so let's think about applications that we can draw from this, um, from these verses. I think first is that Jesus knows us. He knows what our needs are before we even ask what our needs are. And he cares about those needs. Um, another thing we see is that his supply is abundant. It goes over and beyond what we could even imagine. It's an abundant supply. Um, another thing is, I think that uh, we can draw out of this, is that Jesus could have just created the bread out of nothing, but he he actually used something. He used this boy's lunch. Um, and I think an application for us is that even the meager gifts that we have to give that are given in obedience to him, um, God can be, God can use those in abundant ways. We think our gifts may not be as good as somebody else's or we don't have much, but God can use those things um, that we give in more ways than we can even imagine. All right, reading on, we have our fifth sign. Jesus walks on the water, and we're going to look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So if you look at the map again, it looks like a pretty, uh, not a very far distance from Bethsaida to Capernaum. The Sea of Galilee is about seven or eight miles across, and it would be 13 miles long, and um, it was probably about five or six miles that they needed to row to get, a, to get across to Capernaum. 
And John tells us that they had been rowing about three or four miles. Um, from the parallel passage that you looked up in Mark 6, we are told that Jesus saw them. He sees that the disciples are having a hard time rowing against the wind. Now, I don't know if you spend any time thinking about this, but <coughs> whether it was some type of supernatural seeing in the way that God sees into the hearts of men and he knows all things. Um, but it's possible that if this, there's not rain mentioned, it's not mentioned that there was a storm, but it says that it was wind. Um, it would have been a moonlit night. It's the near the time of Passover. Passover occurs at a full moon. Um, it's possible from an elevated position, he might have actually seen their boat struggling against the wind. We really, we don't know, but the point is that he saw them. Um, let's see. When they see him coming, they are terrified. And I don't know about you, but I would have been terrified too. That's not something that you see every day. Maybe just, you know, every month or so, but not every day. If you see somebody walking on water or anything like that. I do think it's interesting that there's no mention that they are afraid before this. They're afraid when they see him, but it doesn't say that they're crying out or they're in fear. You know, there's another time when uh, they're in a storm that Jesus is in the boat. And that, John doesn't talk about that event in, in his gospel. That's already happened. Um, I like to think that their faith has grown um, and that that is why this is not mentioned. Think about what they've just witnessed. They've just seen Jesus do. Um, all the other things they've seen Jesus do. And I, I think that their, I like to think that their faith has grown. Um, something interesting to note is that Jesus' response, it is I. Um, those Greek words are translated other places, it, that I am. It is I am. Um, perhaps he's identifying with his father here. Um, now, I want you to turn just for a moment to Matthew 14. See if I still have my thing in here. Matthew 14. And we're going to look at verse 25 for just a moment. I wanted to add this in. All right. This is the same, same event of walking on the water, but this is Matthew's telling of it. Uh, verses 25 says, And in the fourth watch of the night, this would be like 3 to 6 a.m. It sounds like they might have been rowing for quite a while, unless they, they I don't know how late they started out. Um, but he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Je Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I like this, uh, this uh, parallel uh, passage because not only do we get this insight into what happens at this time with Peter, and we're going to see Peter again in just a few verses, but it also sees, we see that they worshipped him. Um, truly you are the, the son of God. Um, immediately after this, the boat is on land. I mean, that is incredible. Another miracle. Jesus demonstrating his power over nature. Applications for us from this uh, section 
I think one of the big ones, and one of my, my ladies said this in her uh, our group today, is that Jesus sees us. He sees us where we are right now. If you're in the middle of a storm or if you were in one in the past or you're going to be one in one next week, he knows your situation and he sees it. Um, and again, he cares. He helps. Um, he saw them struggling, but he didn't leave them there to struggle by themselves. And he came and he was with them. Um, he will bring us safely home as he brought them safely home. I know that probably sounds cliche, but it is a great comfort. I think another lesson we can draw out of this is that God uses these storms to both glorify himself and to build our faith. And we saw in the passage in Matthew that the disciples worshiped him and said, you are the son of God. And I think that that those storms that he brings us through cause us um, cause us to grow in our faith as well, just just as they did. Okay, now we're going to move on into this third long section about the bread of life, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I find these first verses were the first time I started reading them. I thought they were a little confusing. Um, the number of boats, you know, there was one boat, then it was gone, and then there were more boats. And um, But I think the main idea is that they, they saw that Jesus didn't get, didn't get in the one boat with his disciples. And for some reason, they did not see how he could have possibly gotten away. They get in these other boats and go and find him. And they're surprised. And so they ask him, when did you get here? Um, let's see if he answers them in verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Um, does Jesus answer them? Not really. He, this is kind of a theme, isn't it? He doesn't always answer the question that they pose, but answers a question that's inside. Um, and he uses those words that we've seen before. We're going to see, I think, four times here. Truly, truly, which means... I'm going to be just about to tell you something true, and it's going to correct your misunderstanding, and it's going to allow me to teach you something else. Um, I think these verses also echo that interchange with the Samaritan woman, where he's, he sees their motive. Um, he knows they want physical bread, but he has something to offer that's spiritual instead. And then there's this mention of the seal. You know, seal was like a signature. That was pointed out, I think, in your lesson, that a king would... Um, they would have the wax, and they would put their seal on that. And I, I love that Jesus mentions that I have God's seal affixed to myself. I have his signature. I'm authentic. All right, let's read on in verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, 
Well, then what sign would you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So Jesus had just mentioned work, and he had said, Don't work for something physical, but work for something that's lasting and spiritual. Um, So they say, well, how do we do that? And he, I think, answers this question very clearly. Believe. Believe in me. Okay, they say. So what, what are you going to do? What sign are you going to do to prove that we should believe in you? It's like, what? Did they not just, have they not just followed him over here because of what he just did and all the work he's been doing? And they say, Moses gave us bread for 40 years. It's like they're saying, well, Moses gave us 40 years worth of bread, not just a night. Like, you need to step it up, Jesus. I mean, Moses is kind of ahead of you a little here. Um, But then Jesus sets them straight by saying, that bread wasn't from Moses. It was from God. Um, Further, it wasn't the true bread because the true bread is a person. And then we see that initially it seems like, yes, okay, well, give us, give us that bread. All right. Now he's, he's going to lay it on them. Let's just read 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the, Drew, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? These verses have a lot of theology packed into them. They're very significant verses for us. They're really weighty. They have a lot of meaning. Um, The first thing that he tells them here is that he is, that bread that's a person is him. He is that person. He is that true bread that comes down from heaven. A second astonishing thing that he tells them is that it's the Father's initiative to give believers to the Son. If you're a believer, it's you're God's gift to Jesus. All that the Father gives, come. Um, And then furthermore, all that come will not be lost because guess who's keeping them? Jesus is keeping them. Um, All who believe have eternal life. So God the Father and God the Son cooperate in this miraculous act of salvation. But the Jews grumble because all they hear is that Jesus has said he comes down from heaven. And they're like, you're not from heaven, you're from Nazareth. Like, we know, you're, we know your parents. They, again, this is another thing, they take what he says very literally. They get snagged up on these uh, things, that he's, these spiritual things that he's talking about. Okay, let's read on in 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So the next truth here um, that Jesus reveals is, is the fact that no one can come unless the Father draws him. Now, the Greek word for draws is very interesting. Um, it's spelled H-E-L-K-Y-O, or H-E-L, just K-O. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean influence or entice. It's not the picture of, um, you know, dangling a carrot in someone's nose to try to entice them. Um, I have a Bible. Jill Bundy turned me onto this app that it's a, a Bible that's on my, my iPad and it has a Strong's Concordance. So you can just like click on any word and get the Greek word and the meaning. And I, I have to tell you, I was surprised when I clicked on the, uh, the word and saw the meaning because it means dragged. Unless the Father drags you. Um, here are some other verses where the same word is used. Um, John 18.10, where Peter draws his sword, draws and cuts off the ear, takes it out and cuts off the ear. John 21.11, where Peter hauls a net of fish ashore. That word hauls is the same word. Um, Acts 16.19, where Paul and Silas are dragged before the rulers um, of the city into the marketplace. The same word is used in all those instances. So think about this. Unless the Father drags us, we can't come to Jesus. The idea of us being dragged implies some resistance, doesn't it? If you're having to drag something, it's probably there's some resistance involved. Um, we are by nature sinful and resistant. Um, Romans 3:10. You don't have to turn there. I can just read it to you. Romans 3:10 through 12 says, "As it is written, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside." Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, okay, so he drags us. Does that mean we have no responsibility? No. What is our work? What did Jesus say in verse 29? Our work is to believe. But if you're a believer in Jesus, the Bible says that a work was done by the Father already to make that possible. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, I want y'all to know, I used to be able to quote this perfectly, just saying it, but I have a royally hard time now unless I sing it. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. Um, spare you that, but I am going to turn to it and read. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So salvation is a gift. It is a gift um, and even the faith is the gift from God. Um, 
the ovum of faith. I talked about this the last time I taught. That this got this picture from James Montgomery Boyce that the ovum of faith was planted in your heart if you're a believer. And God's word, the gospel, is like the seed or the sperm um, that creates a new spiritual being. Um, I have to tell y'all, I, I went to talk to Dr. Young Sunday about about this passage and about what I was going to say. And um, she, I, I really wanted to kind of get his blessing and get his thoughts on it. And when I told him that part about the ovum and the sperm, he was like, ooh. <laughs> women? And I was like, what's women's Bible study? He was like, oh, y'all can talk about it there. <laughs> he was like, ugh. Um, I said, well, I, I've already said it before. Um, but it was very funny. He was like, I do not know how you're going to cover John 6 in 45 minutes. And I was like, I know, it's really a lot. Um, but this story, too, I told him this story, and um, he gave me his permission to, to use the story. So this may help. I love the story that I, I read this week. Um, some picture salvation as uh, it's a, like a train station, and all these people are in the train station, and the Jesus train comes through, and... Um, there's people, you know, there that are want. They decide to get on that train. They're on the platform and they decide to board that train, and it's going to take them off to heaven, off to glory. Um, but according to these verses, you're not on the platform. You're not in the station. You're at home, and God comes, and He gets off the train and He comes and gets you, and He br- He brings you and He puts you on the train. That to me is very, very, very humbling. Um, and then uh, I mentioned to the, the girls last night, it reminded me of uh, the scene in uh, Officer and the Gentleman. You young girls, y'all don't even know what I'm talking about, but you know how he goes in at the factory at the end and he just takes her? Oh, love that. <laughs> just takes her out and they start kissing and all that. Um, Jesus then starts developing this idea of the, the eternal aspect of his bread. Moses' bread was physical. All that ate it died. Jesus' bread is spiritual, and it is eternal. And then next, I think this next section is important for us, that we know that Jesus is looking ahead to the cross, and he's referring to his death here. The bread that he gives is his flesh. And then again, we see the same kind of response. They just The Jews get snagged up on this last thing he says. How are we going to eat his flesh? Like, they don't care anything else, but like, that's gross. How are we going to eat his, his body? Um, So let's keep in mind that this is Passover time as we read these next verses, starting in 53. Um, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I, be- I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So he's, he's been giving a sermon, a talk <coughs> on these things. And you were asked in your lesson to look back to Exodus and and look at the Passover. We remember that a lamb had to be killed. Um, The the, uh, Israelites were living in Egypt. There had been a series of plagues. God has said there's going to be one final plague, and this is what you have to do. You have to find a lamb without blemish. You have to kill it. 
you have to put the blood on the doorpost so that when I pass by, I see the blood, I will not come into your house and kill your firstborn. And they had specific instructions on roasting the lamb and eating the lamb. They had to use this lamb. They had to use uh, the flesh and they had to use the blood. Um, I believe that Jesus is referring to himself here, looking forward to the cross. He's referring to himself as that lamb. He is not advocating cannibalism, um, but he's telling them that if you really believe in him and that he is who God has sent, you're not just going to have this intellectual belief that he did great signs or he's a miracle worker, but what they're going to have to believe is that he has come to be their sacrifice. He has come to be the priest. To eat his flesh, to drink his blood means believing that you're a a sinner, um, and that Jesus' death on the cross paid for you, your sin, and you're trusting that sacrifice, um, no work that you can do, but you're totally trusting in him and the work that he's already done. You have to appropriate his sacrifice personally. You know, you can know a lot about food. You can be a wonderful cook. You can know, you could be a nutritionist. You can know all the nutritional value, but it does you no good to know all these things unless you actually take it and put it into your body. Um, it's the same here, but in the spiritual sense, we have to take it in and we have to trust and commit ourselves to, to that belief. Um, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who do not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So this this audience that he's talking to now is not just the audience of in the synagogue, but his followers that have been following him, not the 12, but a greater um, audience. He restates this idea that spiritual life is a work of the Spirit. Um, it reminded me of John 3, the work of the Spirit, where he talks to Nicodemus. The flesh is no help. And again, he says again, no one can come unless granted by the Father, and many depart. Now, 67 says, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You know, I don't know if you guys love Peter or you don't like Peter. I mean, I guess he could be very annoying. But uh, at times, but I love Peter. I love how, um, yes, he's impulsive, um, and he seems to have no filter, but uh, I like people like that. I like people that uh, say what's on their mind, but his words do get him into trouble. Um, but these words are some of the most beautiful to me in, this, in John so far. Just where would we go? Where else would we, where would we turn? You have the words of eternal life. And he calls him uh, the Holy One of God. You know, 
God, Jehovah, is referred to as the Holy One of Israel in the Old Testament. And Peter is acknowledging here Jesus as the Messiah. He's saying, you are the Messiah. And I like to think back to what Peter had just experienced, walking on the water, Jesus coming in the storm. Jesus had, Peter's had this personal experience. His faith has definitely grown. Um, and then John tells us, this is kind of a downer, like, whack, whack. <laughs> uh, it ends on this note, um, one of the 12 will betray him, turn against him. I don't know if you've ever been betrayed by someone, but, you know, part of the hurt of the betrayal is that you don't see it coming usually. You know, it's like, I thought they were this, or I thought they cared about me. Um, but think about Jesus. He knew all along when he chose Judas. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that Judas was going to um, betray him. And I think that might have been a great test for Jesus um, to be obedient to his father's will and have this person there with him all the time that he knew was going to turn against him. Um, all right, well, let's see what we can draw out of this for ourselves. Um, the first thing uh, that I, and it seems like I say this a lot, but the first application is, have you believed? Are you sure that your knowledge is not just intellectual knowledge that you have about Jesus, but are you trusting in that sacrifice that he made for you? Do you realize that there is absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself, and are you trusting in what he's done? If not, he says to you, whoever believes has eternal life that begins now. Um, if you have believed, you can thank God for that gracious gift of salvation and the faith that he gave you, um, paying for your sin. Uh, you can be thankful that he keeps you. There's nothing that you can do um, to separate yourself from the Savior. Um, if you've ever blown it, that probably means a lot to you. You're safe. It does not depend on you. Um, even though Jesus has given us himself and everything we need spiritually, how do we look to physical things for satisfaction rather than allowing him to fully satisfy? What is your focus? Your home, your job, your children, maybe it's your fitness, your hobbies. I mean, all of these things are good things unless they're taking the place that only Jesus should, should have. Um, how much effort and time do you put into those things versus time spent on spiritual things? It's very convicting. But I think the fact, I just want to encourage you guys, because the fact that you're here um, is an indication that you are thirsty girls, first of all, that you are looking to Jesus for satisfaction, for that living water, and for that um, living bread, the bread of life. I hope that you are encouraged by that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that that uh, you have the words of life. We thank you that you came um, and that you did a miraculous work in our, in our hearts and that you paid the price for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.